Christ is risen. Good morning, Grace Church. It is good to have you here. Good to see you here. And what a morning it has already been. What a praise and thanksgiving we give to God for the testimony of baptism as part of the life of the church. God's marking us, signing and sealing our salvation and sharing that together with the body of Christ is a joy to be together. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, beginning at uh, verse 12. We'll be reading the second half of the chapter. For those of you who are visiting with us, this is a theologically dense passage of Scripture. But that's okay. We'll walk through it. We'll understand it a little better before the uh, hour is complete. Uh, And by that, I mean the hour of worship, not the hour of sermon. Probably won't go that long this morning. But it's one that speaks to the heart of the salvation that we've been celebrating today that is ours through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray together, and then I want to read this passage of Scripture. And by the way, you'll find that on page 942 in your pew Bible if you're using that. Heavenly Father, on this Resurrection Sunday, this Resurrection Lord's Day, we come before you granting the truth of your word in which we learn that there is nothing we can do to establish relationship with you apart from receiving the free gift that you give us by your grace through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Father, I pray that if there are any here this morning who have not trusted Christ, that even now on this resurrection Lord's day, this would be the day of their birth into your kingdom, their transference from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son. We seek you for that by the ministry of your Spirit, through the preaching of your Word, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Listen now to the Word of God. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 
and women. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So reads the word of God. It is almost inconceivable, an almost inconceivable thought that we live in a world where someone has risen from the dead. Not just revived after no heartbeat, but victorious over death. It is almost inconceivable. It could surely sound like fiction or or even fantasy to suggest that someone has risen from the dead in victory over sin and death. So, again, not just resuscitated and revived, but raised with a new body such that someone who saw him just a couple of days before now mistakes him for the gardener because it's not possible that what we've seen transpire in between those two has him looking like this on a Sunday morning. But if you're a guest with us on this most special of days on the Christian calendar, you need to know right off the bat that you're among people this morning who genuinely believe this is true. That someone has risen from the grave in victory over sin and death. Not only do we believe that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, himself fully God, even while he is also fully human, that Jesus Christ died as a sacrifice to satisfy the just wrath of God against the sin and rebellion of all humankind. His own image-bearing creation. He died for their sin and he arose from the grave on that first Easter morning in victory over sin and death. Not only do we believe these things to be true, We actually agree with the Apostle Paul who wrote to one of the early churches saying that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised from the dead in just the way we talk about here, we're wasting our time as we gather Sunday by Sunday and you're wasting your time joining us on Easter Sunday. We honestly believe that that is true. And we just think it's very important for you to know that right up front. And more. We also think that most of the people in the modern world history over the last 2,000 years have respected this belief. Even if they haven't fully embraced it themselves. You You can see that, for instance, in the fact that Christmas and Easter are celebrated worldwide in one form or another respectively representing or celebrating the birth of Christ and the death and resurrection of Christ around the world. We also see it in the fact that the world calendar is anchored to his birth. It hinges on his birth. 
The great divide in human history that's reflected every single time we say what year it is, is anchored to the birth of Christ. There has been a genuine respect for this teaching throughout history, even though it has fallen into some disrepute in our day. All of this said, cutting to the heart of the matter and getting to the text that's before us over these next few moments, some people will still ask, what's so important about the death and resurrection of Jesus? Why do Christians think we need a Savior? What do we need to be saved from? Well, these are fair questions. And we're studying a book of the Bible right now together, a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, a church, by the way, that's still pretty famous today, that answers these very questions in the very passage that's before us this morning. Why is it so important, or what's so important about the death and resurrection of Jesus? Why do Christians think we need a Savior? And what do we need to be saved from? Oddly enough, we did a quick introduction to the book of Romans this past Christmas Sunday morning. Some of you who are here can remember that. And when we did so, we selected a text that we believe is the thematic center of this letter to the Roman church which happens to be the longest of the New Testament letters. And it was this very passage that's before us again this morning that's just come up as we're walking systematically through this letter. So by God's providence and without a shred of human intention, we are covering the very same text of Scripture on Easter Sunday that we covered on Christmas Sunday. I think there's something good and important about that, although I can't quite figure out what that is. It just seems significant. But I'm glad you've joined us today. We were looking at it on that Sunday from the perspective of the birth of Christ and what we learn from that through a text like this. And now, talking about the death and resurrection. So let's answer those three questions that we just posed. But let's leave the death and resurrection question that we asked first. Let's leave it till last and start with the question, why do we need a Savior? Why do Christians think we need a Savior? That's a good question that many people ask. So let's begin by recognizing, though, that these first two questions, that one and the question, what do we need to be saved from, are really opposite sides of the same coin. They're very related questions, although it's helpful to address them separately. We might say that the first question is more general in nature, and the second is a bit more specific in nature, and that's how we'll address them now. So in short, Answer to the first question. Here it is. Why do Christians think we need a Savior? Christians think we need a Savior because they believe the Bible when it says that we have a life-threatening problem that we're completely unable to solve. That's why we believe we need a Savior. We have a life-threatening problem that we are completely unable to solve. We believe the Bible when it teaches us that. And I think we have experiential engagement with that. We've heard testimony to that from the baptism this morning. And it isn't that we always, when we need a Savior, when we have a life-threatening problem with no other solution, isn't that when we need a Savior? When we are in a situation like that. And we have needs all the time. 
we're drowning in the ocean waves and we can't reach the shore, or, or we're in a pool and we can't reach the side, or we have some organ failure that only a surgeon can address. We need a Savior when we have a life-threatening problem. Now, we are so vulnerable as people. Self-sufficiency is such a myth. Do you hear me? Self-sufficiency is such a myth that we often need help of many sorts, whether it's for a broken bone or, or for bankruptcy or, or for a babysitter for Saturday night. We have needs all the time of varying different sorts. Every single day, we have needs that need to be met. But we tend to reserve this word Savior for truly life-threatening needs. We need a Savior when if we aren't, aren't delivered, we're dead. That's when we need a Savior. And that's what Christians believe the Bible teaches. We need a Savior because we have a life-threatening problem that we can't resolve on our own. Second question. What do we need to be saved from? It's like asking, what is that life-threatening problem? Well, Paul answers this one right out of the blocks. And from this point on, I would invite you to just have your Bible open to that passage of Romans 5, beginning at verse 12. And we'll make reference to different verses. We're not going to comment on every verse this morning, but we're going to comment on a few that help us answer these remaining two questions. And the first one, Paul answers it right out of the blocks as verse 12 gets started. He says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Well, there's our problem right there. There's our life-threatening problem that we can't resolve on our own. You see, God is perfectly righteous, which just means that He's, he's perfectly good. He's holy and righteous. He is perfectly good. He doesn't sin and he can't have a true relationship with anyone who does. Just because there's, there's no way to experience connection on the deepest of levels if one person is sinless and perfectly so, and the others are characterized by sin and death. God's holiness is marred by relationship with such people. This is a problem, and we can't fix it. Sin separates us from God, and that's actually the definition of death, separation from God, because life finds its fullest definition in the very nature of God. God is life, and when we're separated from Him, we're in a state of death. That's our problem. What we read here, then, is that sin entered this world through one man. That's talking about Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam, who disobeyed God and the one command that he gave there. And so death, separation from God, entered the world through Adam's sin. Such that death spread to all people because all sinned. We're born into it and then we participated in it ourselves. We've got the same problem that Adam had. We have it by inheritance and we have it by engagement. The next two verses, verses 13 and 14, just fill in some blanks for those who want to look further into this issue, uh, granting the seriousness of the sin problem that we have that brings death. Paul helps us understand how to recognize and, and identify that sin. 
and how it became such an unfixable problem for us. We're not going to take time with those verses this morning, but Grace Church, I'll tell you, we'll come back to those verses next Sunday as a setup for the next passage that we're going to be looking at in Romans. This morning, we recognize them as just filling in some detail that's helpful, but too much for the time that we have together this morning. Just to clarify the answer to our second question, though, and to be clear on that, what we need to be saved from is sin and death. That's what we need to be saved from. Sin, which leads to death. Sin and death are a problem. We can't do anything about that. How many of you have tried or tried to help others avoid death by sheer force of the human will? How's that going for you? How does that work? Well, that's our problem. Physical death mirrors spiritual death. We die in spirit, and then we later die in body. We have a problem. We were made for relationship with God, and we can only be truly happy in relationship with Him. We can only live when we are in right relationship with God. That's an important thing to remember. Sin and death is our problem. It separates us from God, but that separates us from happiness and from feeling fully refreshed in spirit, from realizing the purpose of our existence and knowing who we are and how we're supposed to live, what this life is all about. All of that is tied up with our relationship with God and understanding what He made us to be and to do. When that relationship is broken, we are lost. And there's not thing one we can do to become found. So we were made for a relationship with God, and we can only be truly happy if that is fully restored. Also, the solution that God has crafted to address our problem, what we read about here that Jesus has done for us, the, the solution God has crafted to resolve our problem brings Him glory. It glorifies God. It helps us enter into a full appreciation for who He is and for how much He loves us and from what He has done to express that love to us. You see, God has made us to worship and praise the things that we appreciate. We just do that by nature. You can see that at any concert hall or, or sports stadium or political rally that you go to. God made us to worship things and praise things that we appreciate. We do it by nature. We can't help ourselves. Even when listening to the testimonies from the baptismal this morning, the heart is overflowing and we have to erupt into praise and applause. We're not applauding the performance of the one who read their testimony or the one who's putting them under the waters we think about that for just a moment, we're applauding the God who's able to change a life at any age, and we rejoice in that truth. God made us to worship and praise things we appreciate, but there's nothing that we appreciate more. There's nothing that enthralls us more. There's nothing that engages the human heart more than when we worship and praise and celebrate the God who has saved us. His saving act is beyond our understanding and is worthy of our worship and praise beyond any other thing we see on this planet. It's lasting. It doesn't go away. 
Others who bring us to our feet in, in rapturous applause fade and die just like we do. The Michael Jordans of the world retire. The Placido Domingos lose their voice. Not God. His saving work continues on to all eternity. And those who trust in Him, as the passage says, have eternal life. When God changes somebody, we erupt in praise. We, we were made to do that. We're never truly happy and fulfilled until we're living in that sort of relationship with Him. So there's nothing that enthralls us more. There's nothing that gives us deeper satisfaction, nothing that gives us deeper joy than when we worship and praise and celebrate the God of our salvation. There's the answer to question number two. What do we need to be saved from? Sin and death. And when we are, our whole being comes into focus for the first time. We realize who we are, why we're here, and what we were made for. Third question, what is so important about the death and resurrection of Jesus? Hopefully by now you know the answer to that one yourself. To answer this one, we need to realize that death is not just a consequence of sin, however. It's God's judicial sentence on the sinner. He said to Adam and Eve in the garden, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Death sentence, not just consequence, intentional declaration from the Creator. Adam was warned, but he sinned anyway. And he died spiritually that very day. He was immediately separated from relationship with God. Only later did he die physically. That same truth is true for many of us. Our experience with sin and separation from God goes on a long time in this life before we finally die physically in manifestation of that same death sentence. So Adam died that day in his relationship with God, and the rest of us not only inherited this death, but entered into it ourselves, as we said, due to our own sin. This is the biggest reason why we can't fix the problem that we face all by ourselves. We can't undo the crime that landed us in the prison of sin and death. There's no way out of that prison apart from something happening outside of us. That's where Jesus enters the picture. The one who remains fully God even while he was born into this world as fully human, making him both a suitable sacrifice for our sin as a human being who knows our temptations and a sufficient sacrifice for our sins because he was God himself in the flesh. This was God's plan to remedy the problem we image-bearing creatures had fallen into to provide us with a Savior because we need one. We are dead without it. And this, my friends, this is called grace. We receive something from God that we definitely don't deserve. I was talking to the Iwana kids just recently and gave them that familiar acrostic, grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. 
There's an acrostic that helps you remember what grace is. God's riches at Christ's expense. We receive something from God that we definitely don't deserve. That's grace. We read back in chapter 3 of this letter that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace, receiving something from Him that we don't deserve. We are justified by His grace as a gift, Romans 3 says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul returns to that description right here and offers a clarification. Verse 15, look at that in front of you. The free gift, there it is, that justification, that free gift is not like the sin, the trespass. I'm going to use sin from this point on just for clarity. The free gift is not like the sin for if many died through one man's sin, and we surely did, we've seen that, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, in the same way, much more have they abounded for many. Are you following what this means? Do you understand what he's saying? Paul is telling us about Jesus' death and resurrection here. And he's telling us why they're so important. He's answering our question. God gave them to us as a gift to solve the problem that we have with sin and death. Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He died in our place. You heard the testimony this morning of those who have experienced it personally. He died in our place, absorbing the penalty of God for, for our sin. Then He arose from the dead, showing that He is master over death. And the sin that caused it, he has defeated our greatest enemy in this life. He's conquered our greatest fear, which is the fear of death, the enemy of death. God has provided through Christ a Savior for all who believe. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one sin brought condemnation. It brought the death sentence. But the free gift following many sins brought justification. Justification is just that big word that means not guilty before God the judge. We're justified. We have come up before God. We know of our sin. But if our trust is in Christ, God declares us not guilty. Not guilty of that which separates us from Him because it has been laid on Christ. Verse 17, for if because of one man's sin, death reigned, you can understand that at this point, right? Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. We receive life from the dead through Jesus by trusting in Him as our Savior, our sin-bearer, as God's solution to our sin, we know justification and life. Paul then finishes this stunning thought in these last four verses. Let me read through them. Therefore, as one sin led to condemnation and death for all people, so one act of righteousness, talking about Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, wrapped together as one act 
of righteousness. This is why it's so important. Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the grave leads to justification in life for all people. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, namely Jesus', the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase sin. That just means to identify it. That's what we'll talk a little bit more about next week. The law of God was given, etched on stone with Moses on the mountain, was given so that we'll understand where we broke the law, where we sinned, where we entered into death. Even though the text says that we entered into death, Adam to Moses, even before the law was given, we were dead in our sins. Once the law is given, we just know why. So the law was given to increase the sin, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is why we make such a big deal out of the death and resurrection of Jesus. He saved us from death by dying our death and rising again. And we receive that by faith in Him. Yet the key word here that we can't miss, that I just want to identify as we finish, the key word we can't miss is in verse 17. For if because of the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The free gift of grace must be received. That's the one way that it's different from Adam's sin. We all entered into sin and death under Adam. And Jesus made a provision for all who will believe to receive the penalty for their sin and restore them to life. But it has to be received, and it has to be received by faith. The free gift must be received, and we receive it by faith. By the way, I didn't share this with the Awana crowd that evening, and I, I wish I had because it's a helpful acrostic for faith, just like for grace. Many of you know it. Forsaking all, I trust him. It's a simple way to understand faith. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense, and we receive it by forsaking all other things in which we would place our trust and hope, and trusting and hoping in Him alone. So this free gift must be received, and it's received by faith, by trusting God that Jesus' gift is meant for us, and trusting Him with such an intense sincerity that we now live our lives in obedience to his teaching and in joyful hope of his return. That intense sincerity isn't something we generate ourselves. When we recognize our sin and turn to Christ and trust, that's a work of God that he does within us to give us a hunger and a thirst after righteousness that pursues obedience and lives in hope. And says, along with the Apostle Paul, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live. The life I live in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus is risen. Amen. 
He is risen indeed. And we really, we really believe this is true. In fact, we're staking our lives on it. Join me now as we pray. And as we pray, um, musicians, please return to the platform and communion servers, join me at the front. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this rich text of Scripture that answers questions that really do lie at the center of each one's heart. Even if we can't form each of these three questions so clearly ourselves, we recognize that they're the very things we can wrestle with. Why do Christians believe the death and resurrection of Jesus is so important? Why do we need a Savior? What do we need to be saved from? Father, I pray that the simple and clear answers from your very word that we've shared together this morning would penetrate each one's heart, calling to repentance and faith anyone who has not received Jesus' death as the basis of their reconciled relationship with you. And Father, for all those who have, I pray that we might be strengthened in faith to be proclaimers of this very message, the one that we have celebrated from beginning to end this morning, and the one for which, for which we give thanksgiving and praise as we remember the body and blood of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.